0: Okay, so we're continuing on with our Bible 101 series. This is the good news. It's the second part. We did part one last week. So if you haven't seen that introductory, I would encourage you to go back. It would just be helpful to do them in order. But the Bible 101 series, well, we're really going to the the base or the foundational concepts of the Bible. In this case the good news. What is the good news? What do you mean by the good news? Towards the end of May, beginning of June, we completed our first Bible 101 series, and that was on redemption and covenant. So, those videos would be really good for you to review, because it's unfortunate that what has happened over time is that we lose touch with the original meaning. We lose touch with what these ideas are from the ancient world. So, the Bible is a book of redemption. The message of the Bible is redemption. It's told through a series of covenants. How do we understand covenant? Christians enter a covenant with God. That's the New Testament. is showing us we enter that covenant through Jesus. So, it's unfortunate that we often get these very these fundamental ideas confused, and of course, just a little bit off, and we end up missing the mark. So, that's what we're trying to do is really build up our foundation of the fundamentals of the Bible. So this week I'm using a picture in the background. Uh, This is James Tissot, and it's called The Flight of the Prisoners, and what it's depicting is the Israelites being taken from Jerusalem into Babylon, uh, Babylonian exile. So I'll show you at the end of this lesson how this metaphor of exile and restoration helps us understand what the Bible is saying about the good news and the kingdom of God, and why that's attached to the forgiveness of sins. It is all being woven together in this tapestry, if we have eyes to see the details that are in there. So, for today what we're going to do is the background to the good news. There's always a background. There's a background to every concept whether it's cultural background or a background from the Old Testament that we need to be aware of. But that's what we're going to do today, look into the background of the good news. Now, as a quick review, last week in our first lesson, we really wanted to explore the idea of what do you mean by the good news? Because what we recognize is that there is a chasm between what Bible scholars, how they talk about the words that are used for the good news, what the good news is, as a kingdom, and what church and Christians, how they talk about the good news. And sadly, there's a difference. And I mentioned last week a couple books. One of them is called The Dictionary of Paul and His Letters. If you have the means to get this book, it's really actually worth it to understand how Paul, it helps you see how Paul talks about these concepts. So, every generation, we have to go back to the original meaning as best we can. And the more and more that studies advance and archaeology advances, we see a different meaning than we may have, say, in the 1500s. And then we can wrestle with what that means for us today. So, we need to look at these concepts afresh. That's what our Bible 101 series is doing. This dictionary, A to Z, of all the topics that Paul talks about, is very helpful to see the details, because when Paul talks of Christ, that's shorthand for Messiah, which also means King. When he talks about the kingdom, when he talks about the good news, it's all in the context of God's kingdom and Jesus being Lord. So, it's very helpful. The other one that I mentioned is called the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, and you find the same exact thing. Christ, uh, good news, it's all about the kingdom. Then you look at the kingdom of God, because we have to work that one out. All of these are pointing to the same thing, that the good news is about the kingdom of God, and then we have to figure out, well, what does that mean for us today? So, one of the problems we have is that the good news, over time, it gets reduced down to the way that our churches and many Christians conceive of what the good news is. And so, last week, I brought you a a quote. I think it was from the dictionary of, of Paul and his letters that said, for many Protestants, because it tends to be a Protestant thing, we've reduced the good news down to justification through faith alone, the forgiveness of sins. But it's not that, it's the kingdom, and forgiveness of sins is part of that, no doubt. But if we miss the kingdom part, then we're missing something to our, the way that we practice and envision or conceive of our Christianity. So, if you just Google what does the good news mean, you tend to get something like this. It's the forgiveness of sins. It has to do with salvation. saved from eternal damnation. We don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. We often talk about personal salvation, like did you make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? That language is never found in the Bible, and it has nothing to do with the first century. It's a very modern way of thinking about this whole thing because we're very individualistic. Okay, so that's the chasm, and we need to cross that. So this is what we're doing in this series, and we need to kind of circle around these topics, and we need to ask some questions. So we're going to say, what is the good news? That we did. That's what we did last week. This week we'll look at history uh, within Judaism and the history within Greek writings. We'll look a little bit about what a gospel is, meaning. Uh, the very first time this letter shows up, if you're a Greek person and you're reading it, or a Roman citizen, you're reading it, what do you think it is? Is it a biography? Is it a history? Is it something that's altogether unique? So what genre does gospel fall into? We'll talk about the mystery of the good news. Paul speaks a lot about that mystery of the good news that has now been proclaimed. Um, One of the things that's important is what's the original proclamation? meaning. If Jesus died, some people say 30, some people say 33 AD, it doesn't matter. About 33, well, it's not another, I don't know, 17 years before the first letter is written. Now, that's Paul, and none of the Gospels, one of, none of the letters that we call the Gospels have been written yet, but Paul is talking about a good news, a proclamation. That's what a good news is, a proclamation. What's the original proclamation? How do we understand that? Many scholars point to Acts chapter 10: 34 to 43. This is Peter, and he's telling you about the good news, and so this would be a really good idea if you're following along in this series is to start reading over Acts 10, 34 to 43. Look at the details that are in there. Very important to read slowly, look at all the details, and then we'll flesh that out in a few weeks. So that's a big one. What's the original proclamation? And then finally, and I mentioned this last week a little bit and showed you some pictures of a town in Turkey called Priene, the good news in that first century had to do with the Roman Empire, the what's called the imperial cult. This is the sanctioned worship of Caesar of Caesar Augustus. And his birth is called good news for the world, for the benefits that it's going to provide the world. So his is good news of a kingdom. And so that's what we see is all of this good news is pointing us towards one thing it's about a kingdom. So we have to understand that. What does that mean? That Jesus is Lord, he has become king. Okay, so this is our road map of sorts and today we'll be looking at these two right here, the history within Judaism and the history within the Greek writing. Doesn't matter what your background is, there's something there for you with the good news. Okay, we need to do the background then, some background of what the good news is. And the thing is, is we have to think about our Bible. The New Testament was written in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew, so we've got background in both. So, when we look at the Hebrew side, in the Old Testament, you have a Hebrew word, basar. That's the word that gets translated to be to bring or to bear a message of good news, to bear the good news. That's bizarre. Likewise, you have a Greek word down here. And that Greek word, euangelion, is to bring a message of good news, to bear good news. Now, if you look at that word, ungelion, you eu is the good, and gelion is a message. And I think you can see that Angelion, where we get angel, right? Because an angel is a messenger of God. It brings the message of God. You also, from this, get the idea of evangelical. That's where we get the word evangelical. To evangelize is to bring the good news. Somebody who does that. Now, you'll see they both mean the same thing, so that's no problem. Now, if we go back into the Hebrew Bible, because the Hebrew is, is really where Jesus, his background is the Hebrew, the good news is usually something significant the birth of a son, the ascending of the of throne of, an, of a king, the victory in a battle. There's good news of the victory of a battle in Nahum 1 you, 5. You'll see that. But also, it takes on a religious significance when we get to the book of Isaiah. And it's the good news of God's return, God's reign over Jerusalem. So, Now, on the other hand, if you go down to the Greek, well, The word, like it seems most Greek words, go all the way back to Homer. And the good news in that Greek world, it was a gift from God. So you got a word that was a gift from the gods and that a sacrifice is to be made, like a Thanksgiving offering. And of course, in that world, everything was from God. But if it was good, then it was good news from God. So there's a religious context to the idea of the good news, even in the Greek world. Now, what's more important, though, when we get to the New Testament and the Greek, is what's happening with that word in the first century. And this, as I've mentioned, is that it takes on the significance of the emperor cult. That's the, again, sanctioned worship of the Caesars, starting with Caesar Augustus. And what you'll see is They talk about the good news of the victory in battle, just like it's used in the Hebrew Bible. But then we have an inscription, we'll do it in a couple weeks, it talks about the good news of the birth of Caesar Augustus. Now it's even worse than that, it says the birth of our God, Augustus, and then all the benefits that flow out to the world because of this birth. And it's a complete fabrication, of course, of what Jesus is. So, that's our background. It doesn't matter if you're a Greek, if you're a Roman, or if you're Jewish. You're going to see something that's bigger than just, well, this is good news. There's a religious sense in that phrase, good news. So, when Mark's Gospel opens up, the beginning of the good news, boom, that lands. It doesn't matter who reads that. There's something in mind going on that has to do with the gods the Caesars or the God of Israel it doesn't matter who you are okay important to know that background now second important thing to know because where the significance comes from is in the book of Isaiah and we're going to see how important not only where those words are used in Isaiah but recognizing the progression of Isaiah it's the latter half of Isaiah from chapter 40 on to 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 And this is so critical to our understanding, because the book of Mark is going to open the story of the good news of God's kingdom coming with a quotation from Isaiah 40, right at the beginning there. And it's John the Baptist, prepare the way for the Lord. What are we preparing? A way for the Lord to return to Jerusalem. Chapter 40 starts out, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Your sins are forgiven. And so, that's a, it's a very important piece for them. And then you get down to verse 9, and Isaiah 40, verse 9, it says, it's the good news. Here's the announcement of the good news. What's the announcement? That God, it's the, good, the good news is coming to Jerusalem to say, here is your God. God is going to be returning to reign as king. Now, from chapter 40, go to to Isaiah 42. This is where God's going to choose a servant. And that servant is going to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. And oh, by the way, Isaiah 42 is a messianic chapter where you see that idea of, I will put my spirit on him to those first century Jews. That's got messianic implications there. Now from there we go to Isaiah 527, and this is really the key verse. "It's God's reign is returning to Jerusalem." How wonderful the feet of those that bring the good news that your God reigns. From there we go to Isaiah 60. "Yes, God's reign first comes to Jerusalem, but then it's going to go out to the nations." And Isaiah 60, verse three talks about the nations coming to the light of Jerusalem because of God's reign. And then finally, and this is going to connect us again right to Jesus, is Isaiah 61.1. This is where Jesus, he opens up at the synagogue in Nazareth and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. So you hear that again. You hear the Spirit being on him. That's Messianic. The Spirit of the Lord is on me and I'm to proclaim the good news for the poor. For the afflicted. Now, the thing is, though, some people reduce the good news to the poor is going to be taken care of. That's not it. It's the result of God's kingdom being reinaugurated, or the result of God's reign is good news for the poor. Because when God begins to reign, justice breaks out, peace breaks out, forgiveness breaks out and those on the margins begin to be taken care of and brought in towards the center. Selfishness goes away, oppression goes away, because God is reigning. So it's the idea that it's the result of the rain that's good news for the poor, but you can see the importance of Isaiah here. Not only knowing where the idea of the good news shows up in Isaiah, but the flow. And then we don't miss the greater idea of the kingdom happening, and then again reduce that gospel down to something like feeding the poor is the good news. Okay, so you have the importance of Isaiah. Now within Isaiah, I need to show you something. It's Isaiah 52.7, but I want to show you how it's translated, or at least understood, closer to the first century. Okay, to do that, we need to talk about a Targum. First of all, What is a Targum? Well, this is Targum Jonathan. I'll explain that in a minute. But it's the translation found in Targum Jonathan of Isaiah 52.7. And the translation provides an interpretation that's closer to what we find going on in the New Testament. Okay, so the first question we have is, what is a Targum? What does that mean? Well, Targum is simply a word that means translation. So, any translation of the Bible besides Hebrew You could say is a Targum, but really we use it today to talk about the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible. So if someone says Targum, you don't think translation, well, I wonder which one he's talking about. You go, oh, he's talking about the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible. So that's a Targum. And what happens is this Aramaic is spoken in Babylon and all over that area. And so you have a lot of people who don't speak Hebrew, the language they communicate with is Aramaic, and so when you go to the synagogue, I want to hear the Bible in my own uh, language. So, you would have somebody reading from the Hebrew scriptures, and someone next to them would be translating it into Aramaic. Now, eventually what happens is, you take those translations that the community is doing, and then you you write it down. And that's where Jonathan comes in. So Jonathan would be like a professional scribe. And so he's writing down what the community, how the community translates that Hebrew Bible. And what's cool about this and what really helps us understand the New Testament is that when they do this, the translation is often different. Maybe a paraphrase, we'll see. And it's done that way as interpretation to help the people understand what it really means. And This gets really wild when you get to the idea of the logos in John, because you don't want to go to Greek logos first. You want to go to the targums. It's the good news of the memra of God. Memra is the word that means word. So John opens his his gospel in the beginning was the word, which in Greek is logos, but in Aramaic memra, and that's all over the targums. Okay, so it's very helpful. This is so I want to show you a targum a translation of the hebrew bible to targum jonathan so if we look at isaiah 52:7 there's going to be some slight differences cuz it's going to add interpretation and this is by the way on your handout where he writes how beautiful upon the mountains of the land of israel are the feet of him that bring the good news so there's your idea of good news but notice here what he did for translation right here and i put it in brackets to help you So, if you look at the Hebrew, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bring the good news. Well, which mountains are you talking about? Oh, the ones of the land of Israel. Okay. So now, when he does that, when Jonathan translates, he adds in the phrase, of the land of Israel, so that we know which mountains you're talking about. So, how beautiful upon the mountains of the land of Israel are the feet of him that brings the good news, that publishes peace, that publishes salvation, saying to the congregation of Zion, now look at this, the kingdom of your God is revealed. Now that's different. That's different than the Hebrew Bible. It's a revealing that goes on. So if we go and we compare the two, Targum Jonathan on one side, the Hebrew Bible on the other side, you get this verse, the kingdom of your God is revealed, and then we compare that over here, To the Hebrew that just says, your God reigns. Now, you notice something. Specifically, you see the idea of kingdom. So, it's the kingdom of God. The reign of God is being revealed. And the revealing... Well, this is what's happening in what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the revealing of the kingdom of God that's taking place through the birth, through the actions of Jesus, through his ministry, through his miracles, up to the point where he enters Jerusalem as the king, and then goes to the cross. So, the narratives of the gospel tell you, they reveal to you about the good news. And N.T. Wright likes to say, this is what it looks like when God becomes king. And so we're all called into the kingdom. Not that we can have comfortable lives and get everything we want from God and then just wait until we die and go to heaven. No, we're called into the kingdom to be kingdom people, to manifest the kingdom of God here on earth. And oh, by the way, the person that we're following, we must remember, suffered and died on a cross. So perhaps if the time is right, we may be also called to be cross people. And that means the willingness, in the face of the powers and the principalities and the authorities of this age, that we would stand firm, as Jesus did, in our faith, in our confidence in God, that we may suffer as a consequence for telling the truth, for pointing out an injustice, for defending the poor, whatever it is. So, the targum helps us understand that the New Testament is about the revealing of the kingdom of God, not just your God reigns like it's static. So hopefully that helps you think about what's happening in the New Testament and how closer to the time in the New Testament people may have thought about that phrase your God reigns. So finally, this is the fifth one because I need to introduce there's a metaphor in the Bible. When it has to do with exile and restoration, and it's found throughout the Bible, and there's a powerful message. It comes through Jesus concerning how we conceive of this exile and restoration, and how the people in Israel that day were conceiving of that exile and restoration. So, for instance, sin and exile from the land, well, those are connected in the Bible. Sin causes exile. So, what is needed For the restoration or the redemption back into the land, well, we need the forgiveness of sins. And that's why those are always connected. That's why when we hear about the good news of the kingdom and we want to enter into that kingdom, it's the forgiveness of sins as well, because that's part of the process. Now, exile, well, that can be a forced removal from the land. Like the picture in the background there, the Israelites, or I'm sorry, In Judah, down in Jerusalem, they were sinning. So what does God do? Well, the Bible tells us he raised up his servant Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, by the way, God used Nebuchadnezzar. And he used him to remove the people from the land, to take them into exile. That's the exile. Now, the thing is, though, is that Greek word for exile may also be a choice. So we have like a story, the parable, like the prodigal son. They chose to leave, or he chose to leave. And we can choose to leave as well. And so there's something profound about this. So exile, the northern kingdom, by the way, this gets confusing because the northern kingdom is called Israel, but sometimes it's called Ephraim. And sometimes in the same chapter, it'll go back and forth. Israel, Ephraim, Israel, Ephraim. So well, they were exiled, yes, due to their sin by the Assyrians, and that was in 722 BC. Then you go down to the southern kingdom, that's Judah and where Jerusalem is, and what happened to them? Well, they were exiled. Why? Because of their sin. And that was the Babylonian. And so this is the importance of Isaiah 40, going back to Isaiah 40, and why the New Testament writers are starting off with Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, your hard service is over, your iniquities are pardoned, your sins are forgiven. And iniquities, by the way, that's a little bit different than just general sin. See, in the Bible, there is sin that's unintentional sin. You didn't mean to do it. You didn't know any better. You didn't have all the information you needed. You went down the wrong path because you can't see into the future. But you ended up in a place and you realized, oh, wait a minute, I thought I was doing the right thing and I wasn't. It was unintentional sin. That's a sin in the Bible. You go off the path. You miss the mark. There was nothing intentional about it but when you get to this word here your iniquities is the word avon and that's intentional avon means to bend to twist and you're doing it intentionally right lying is bending and twisting the truth in order to get you an advantage over somebody else oppression using rules and money and whatever to oppress people is a twisting and a bending of the rules of justice for your selfish benefit. And so, it's more than just, hey, I didn't know I was sinning. I knew I was sinning. God says, I'm going to forgive those sins. And so, when God is going to return to Jerusalem to reign as the king, the announcement that the iniquities have been forgiven, the forgiveness of sins, that's primary. And so, for us to enter the kingdom of God, since we've been exiled in a way, metaphorically, due to our sin, well, that requires forgiveness of sins. And so, that's part of the message. It's there. And so, the forgiveness, it's in there, but it's not the center of what the gospel means. That's the kingdom. And we need to make sure we don't lose sight of that. Now, if you go to the Bible, Adam and Eve... The story of Adam and Eve is an archetypal story of humanity. It's a story of sin and exile from the land. In this case, the land was Eden. It was a paradise. Paradise is a Greek uh, borrow word, but it means a walled garden and cl- a sacred enclosure where the presence of God and the people of God and the place of God were all together. But because of their sin, they're exiled. Like you can see in this painting here. They're being driven out. They're being exiled from the Garden of Eden. And then God places an angel on the flaming sword that stands in the way of your path getting back to Eden. And so, if Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden, from paradise, due to sin, then what do they need to get back in? Well, they need the forgiveness of sins. And this, in some very deep and profound sense, is the story of humanity. All humanity is exiled from God. And we're exiled from God's reign as king. And so, metaphorically, we have to go back into, work our way back into that kingdom, that paradise. Of course, the first step, we acknowledge, we call on the name of God for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, Yeshua. But if we call on the name of God, and he will forgive our sins, and we enter back into the Kingdom, so it's all here in the Bible, but it's like in a uh, uh in the giant metaphor now here's what's cool: what happens with Jesus because now we have to go to Israel in the first century because they're exiled, but they're in the land right now, what happened was there was no physical kingdom for Israel, and this was a frustrating matter. in fact, they were ruled over physically by the Kingdom of Rome, and they hated that they hated being ruled by a kingdom who declared that their Caesar was a god. And so, Jesus is going to show up, and he's going to do something radical, right? Because so many of those people, they want to make Jesus a physical king, they want him to bring about a physical kingdom, fight the Romans, defeat the enemy, restore the kingdom, so that we can be in peace. But Jesus says, no, no, no. The real power of all of this is it's a spiritual kingdom. And so I'm going to come to die, but I'm going to show you how to enter God's kingdom. God's reign is eternal. No matter where you're living, no matter what physical king you may be living under, you can choose God's reign in your life, and no one can take that away from you. So, what Jesus is saying to them is look, you're in the land of Israel, but you're exiled spiritually. And this is why today, because it's been abstracted out of that metaphor, we don't have to live in Jerusalem to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom extends everywhere, no matter what physical king or government is in charge, and we can still manifest that kingdom into reality through the power of the Holy Spirit and our our obedience to the rule of the king. And when we make God the king and call Jesus Lord, the kingdom gets manifested here on earth. And what God wants is all humanity to call on his name to manifest the kingdom here on earth. And so we're just one step in this process. But it doesn't matter where you are. Everybody, in some sense, is exiled spiritually from God. And that's a powerful message coming from Jesus, which is why I think the disciples and Paul, they get it. They can so readily go out into the world and declare this, and it doesn't matter what city you're in. And this is one of the most important things about recognizing kingdom Rather than just salvation, we are called into the kingdom of God. And when we enter that kingdom, we make Jesus Lord, we allow God to reign in our lives. Yes, of course, your sins are forgiven, the sins of the past, but more than that, we're called to transform into kingdom people. I put a couple verses uh, under number six on your sheet. You're called to be a kingdom person, and there's transformational power in the spirit that we share with Jesus, or the Christ as Lord. Paul brings this out over and over and over. The same spirit that had the power to raise Jesus from the dead is available to transform us into kingdom people. It's not about, do we get to go to heaven? Yes, that'll happen one day. You want to bring heaven to earth, wherever you're at, whatever your circumstances. Be a kingdom person. That's what the Bible is calling us to do. Your belief in the, king, the reign of God turns to action, not just an intellectual checklist of what doctrines I got right. We're missing the point there. So we want to be transformed into kingdom people. Okay, let's do a quick review. We're finishing up. So we started out with this. The whole point today was to look backwards, to say, what's the background to this idea of good news? The words, how are they used in Hebrew? in the Old Testament? How, they, how are they used in the Greek mindset? How were they used in the first century when you said, it's the good news that Caesar Augustus was born? And so, as we go back and we bring the background of those words forward, we can understand more about the kingdom and what it means there. There was a kingdom of a savior there in the first century. And it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, if you're a Roman citizen and speak Latin, if you're a Greek citizen of the Roman Empire who speaks Greek, the phrase good news lands as something significant about a god. So we have to understand that history and how impactful that is for the first century audience. Okay, we're trying to bridge this gap. We're trying to go between biblical scholars that see good news as all about the kingdom and what we often get in church or what Christians think about salvation or forgiveness of sins, but we leave out the kingdom part. So, it's a historical context, always important to look at that. The prophet Isaiah, how important it is to understand not only where those references to the good news are that the New Testament writers are relying on, but also the progress that says, yes, God's reign is going to come to Jerusalem first, but it's also going to go out to the nations, because Jerusalem becomes the light that brings the nations in. In fact, what becomes the light is the servant himself is the covenant for the people and a light to the nations and that's Jesus. We looked at that Aramaic Targum Jonathan to see how they would have translated Isaiah 52:7 and understood it in the 1st century and that's more in line with what we see happening the revealing of God's kingdom is what Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are telling us and it's being revealed through the ministry of Jesus through his birth ministry All of his actions, what he says, his obedience to go all the way to the cross, death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father. So you can confidently say he's reigning now. And then finally, the last thing is that sin and exile and forgiveness of sin and restoration, they're all intertwined uh, throughout the Bible. So when we think about this idea of the king coming back to reign, yes. We need the forgiveness of sins. The thing that put us in exile has been forgiven, and now God can come back to reign in our lives. So that's the good news part two, and we will continue on. We'll continue on over the next couple weeks. We'll look at Acts 10 and what Peter says and start to dissect the details of what scholars believe was possibly the earliest proclamation of the good news.